This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. It's almost Christmas. In fact, this is our last episode of Bold Dominion before Christmas. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. Go ahead, bear with me here. Now imagine a dining table. You're sitting at the dining table. People you love spending time with are also at that dining table. Everyone's vaccinated, nobody's sick, so you're just happy to catch up with people. There are delicious food smells coming from the kitchen. You think somebody brought a pie. And you know this is going to be a nice meal. But what if you can't really afford this home? Your landlord just raised your rent to $1,600 a month, and that's almost half your monthly salary. You can still enjoy this nice meal with friends. You're going to but you're still thinking about housing costs, still thinking about where the money's gonna come from. Always, always in the background, always somewhere in your mind, where's the money gonna come from? This Christmas, this is the reality for millions of Virginians. Almost three in 10 households in the Commonwealth are cost burdened. That is, three in 10 Virginia households pay more than 30% of their income for shelter. During the pandemic, median home prices and rents have gone way up. So, too, have the number of cost-burdened Virginia households. Some of it comes down to supply and demand. And as more people come in and, you know, we don't have a lot of new housing being built, and if it's just single-family homes, that makes for a shortage. That's Erin O'Hare. She's the equity reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. We'll hear more from her in the second half of the show about how Charlottesville is handling its own affordable housing shortage. But first, we turn to Wyatt Gordon, who covers transportation, housing, and land use for the Virginia Mercury. As Wyatt explains, it's not just a pure market supply and demand issue. It's also about zoning and how cities across Virginia and America have zoned our way out of missing middle housing. Wyatt, earlier this year, you wrote a piece at the Virginia Mercury called How to Bring the Missing Middle to Virginia Housing Development. Um, let's start by defining our terms. What's what's the missing middle? Yeah, interestingly enough, people like to talk about missing middle as if it's purely focused on the affordability element. People are really excited about missing middle housing because it is more affordable. Uh, in reality, missing middle is kind of doing this thing that helps planners and local officials get around conversations that they don't want to have about density. So missing middle homes are more dense. They have more than one residential unit and household within them, but they still tend to look like homes. So what you imagine for a home, you're still going to see that um, even though inside you may have one, two, three, four different units, um, but it's about squeezing more units into the kind of the same size home that fits into any standard neighborhood that we have in the Commonwealth. Yeah. So we're talking about really like duplexes, maybe triplexes or or quadplexes, but not big multi-unit, multi-floor apartment buildings. Exactly. The the term missing middle really tries to describe the fact that we have a missing middle in our housing market of what we used to offer to people as potential housing options. We've really winnowed that out over the last 80 years where now we're only offering pretty much two options, which is one, a large single family detached unit, which tends to be the most expensive unit possible. On the other hand, we have large apartment buildings. Really, this is all just a product of zoning. We've zoned our way out of the freedom that other generations used to have in terms of what housing options were available to be built. 
Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about zoning more here in just a minute and, and kind of zoom in on, on some of the parts of this conversation. But before we dive into all the pieces, I, I want to zoom out just a little. We're, we're really talking about housing affordability. The issue here is we're not even talking about vouchers or public housing or other policies. It's really just, you know, increasing inventory in order to, I mean, how does that make uh, homes more affordable? Yeah, people like to have conversations around housing affordability and think that we immediately need subsidies. Um, Subsidies are clearly helpful and necessary for a certain class of the market. However, our biggest issue is that we're just not building enough housing. We have built the least amount of housing ever over the previous decade. And I don't think people really grasp how bad the financial crisis was, um, not only for household incomes, but in terms of really putting a lot of home builders out of business when the property bubble collapsed. We just don't have the response available from the private sector that we used to have to build housing. Um, So you have fewer home builders with less bandwidth to build the number of homes that we need during a time when not only is our population really growing, um, but we also are seeing households starting to kind of balkanize. So the the size of your average household has gotten a lot smaller than it used to be. And most people, um, I think, go through a fairly extended period of life where they live by themselves in a way that was not generally typical of previous generations and ever more people are choosing to live alone for longer periods of time, um, which means not only do we have more people, but we have more people choosing to live in smaller households, which means we need an ever expanding number of units in order to keep that demand for units low um, to make sure that demand is being met so that prices don't skyrocket like we've seen over the last two years. Hmm. It's a mess. It's a mess, yeah. (laughs) Housing policy is a mess. And I think part of the reason housing policy has become such a problem is because in America, we don't tend to think of housing policy as something that we want our politicians and government to actively intervene in. Um, Government-related housing policy is something for other people seen as people who are 30% of average median income or lower. That's the only place where in American society, whether you're on the right or on the left, you tend to think that there's a role for government is for those other people. Um, What we don't pay attention to in America is the way that we have been doing housing policy since the 1940s um, without anyone really paying attention. And these are all of the myriad regulations, really like layers of an onion that have built out our environment to look the way it is. And for a country that constantly states that we don't want to engage in social engineering, we do a lot of social engineering, specifically when it comes to our housing policy. Um, Zoning as it exists today did not exist back in the 40s. You've heard me saying for about 80 years, um, things started to change in the 40s and 50s. That's when we really started to see zoning come to pretty much every locality across America because that was when you have this large um, outpour of racist expression among white people in terms of white flight and trying to change what their built environment looked like to erase people that they didn't want in their neighborhoods. We still do this a lot today based on what we're allowed to build. Um, And we're really trying to remove the aesthetics of what people perceive to be poverty, which tends 
to be multifamily. That's what people think of um, when they think of multifamily. They think, oh, everyone who lives there must be poor or else you would choose to get a single family home. Now, as we see that um, the most overt racism in American society has begun to subside, now we've really created a system in which everyone is suffering under a structure which we were trying to use to targetively punish specific groups of people. We've now made it the norm so far that everyone is collectively suffering. And I think that's why you're starting to see some change happening here because it's increasingly young, professional, affluent white people who are struggling to purchase homes. We kind of expect that group of people within American society to always be able to be advancing. And we've created a system in which now almost no one can advance unless they have pretty unusual amounts of wealth compared to the general general public at large. How did the system backfire so hard? system backfired because it was set up to exclude people from the very beginning. Um, I think you're just seeing that now combined with other things that are going wrong in American society. Um, thinking about stagnating wages, for example, um, you're really kind of seeing this system of prosperity for some built on the backs of others expand ever further. Um, and I think that's why you see a pretty large generational divide on housing policy. And regularly when you ask people who are older, um, you know, maybe for fun over the holidays, ask your family how much you think certain homes are, go for a walk of the neighborhood and ask them what their guesses are. They probably won't have any clue. Um, housing has gotten really expensive compared to what it used to be and not just in nominal terms. It's specifically related to how much people earn. Um, so even before the pandemic, when prices went crazy, um, we had 27.4% of Virginian households who were cost burden. Um, cost burden means you're putting more than 30% of your total income towards just providing shelter for your, for your household. Um, for low income individuals, that was already at 44%. So 44% of people who were low income in Virginia before the pandemic, before the pandemic, when we know that prices went crazy, um, were already cost burden. Um, now, after last year, when prices for homes went up 16.6%, the new figures that are going to come out are going to be even worse. Yeah. So it's really just a system that hasn't been working for people in general. We've identified zoning as a real impediment to housing affordability, to inventory of missing middle housing. Why doesn't it change more quickly? I would say the problem is twofold. One is a lot of decision makers don't understand the problem because they're not living the problem. Um, when you look at people who are county or city officials, they're overwhelmingly homeowners already. The other thing is that there's just so many interlocking and really boring regulations that are hugely prohibitive that it's really hard to put a sign out in your front yard and say like, end minimum lot sizes, end <laughs> 50 foot setbacks. To make a pro-housing political platform vibrant and attractive to people, you've seen folks across America um, talking about how to have more neighbors. Like we want neighbors. Um, 
Minneapolis and St. Paul have done some really progressive housing policies to build more supply. Um, and their campaign slogan has been neighbors for more neighbors saying that, you know, we live here, we love living here and we think more people is gonna make it better to live here because we'll have more residents to support our local businesses. We'll have more people sitting out on their porches at night. So when I walk home really late, there are more eyes out there making sure that nothing is happening in our neighborhood. Um, so there is a way to really frame pro-housing, pro-growth policies in a way that's attractive, um, but it's generally not by specifically messaging any of the really wonky detailed ordinances, codes, and regulations that you have to change to get to that better future. One of the things I've read about in, in housing policy, one of the things that does also get in the way is a lot of NIMBYs, that not in my backyard crowd. What role do the NIMBYs play in, in preventing or slowing down this kind of change? NIMBYs slow down change with such force. Um, and you wouldn't think that even just slowing down a procedure would be such a problem. You know, why can't we just put these permits on hold for this new building down the street? Like, why can't we just take our time and do our due diligence on this project? All of that sounds incredibly reasonable. Anyone who is a business owner knows, though, that time is money. Um, so the amount of time that your project is put on hold is time that you are having to pay for all of your workers to be there, to be doing things. But you're not actually developing more housing units that you can sell to then pay for all of those things that your business needs to keep going. So NIMBYs, by fighting projects, just add on layers and layers of costs. Is there anything the state government can do to support housing affordability or, or this kind of missing middle issue? What has become a common trend across America is you increasingly see state level um, actors getting involved in housing policy at the local level, simply because if you look over the results of housing policy led by localities over the last 80 years, it's bad. That's why we have a housing crisis. Um, that's why in places like Arlington that are so in demand because there's just huge amounts of jobs. You have really wonderful transportation infrastructure that can get you into DC and access all of those high earning jobs. What you see is really large multifamily apartment building units all along like one block off of the metro corridor and then it immediately drops to just single family homes with no opportunity for anything else mixed in there and that's why you see that prices have gone crazy is because localities haven't taken it upon themselves to ease zoning and make these very reasonable changes to allow even missing middle housing for example um, so you're increasingly seeing state actors that are going well, y'all really have not dealt with this. And I think it is time for us to get involved. Whenever you see states trying to intervene and uh, loosen up zoning and reduce some of those restrictions, you get incredible pushback from localities. I think because a lot of local leaders really feel like that is their one place where they get involved and maintaining the status quo or allowing for growth to happen in certain areas, that's really the base of their power. Um, so when you come for zoning, you're essentially coming for what some local leaders 
see is their number one way to raise money to interact with their constituents um, to really prove that they're doing their job um, so it's no wonder that um, quite a few local leaders are really opposed to any changes in zoning wyatt gordon covers transportation housing and land use for the virginia mercury Stick around. In the second half of the episode, we've got Charlottesville Tomorrow equity reporter Aaron O'Hare. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for changing Virginia. Find us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to get into state politics? Well, tell them about this show and then subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. And while you're there, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. We like those a lot. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music and community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Well, in the first half, we talked with Wyatt Gordon, who told us about missing middle housing and how it's playing out in cities across the Commonwealth. In the second half of today's show, we zoom in on Charlottesville and find out more about how this city is approaching its affordable housing shortage. Charlottesville Tomorrow equity reporter Aaron O'Hare spoke with Bold Dominion producer Catherine Hansen. So if you can give us an overview of the changes to the Charlottesville future land use map. In November, the city council adopted a new comprehensive plan Part of that plan is the future land use map, the flume or the flum, depending on who you talk to. Um, And that's like a two page, it's two pages of a 120 something page plan. But the future land use map has been one of the more controversial aspects of the plan because it sets the stage for a rezoning in the city, uh, which, you know, is what people hope will allow there to be more types of housing, um, more variety in housing, and just more housing, more affordable housing in the city. So the city has not updated or had not updated its future land use map since 2013. Yeah, 2013. And that 2013 map classifies most of the city as low density residential. And so in those areas, the only new housing allowed single family homes in the occasional duplex. So no multiplexes, that's like a triplex or a, you know, fourplex, sixplex, and no apartment buildings. And Rory Stoltzenberg, a member of the planning commission, said that that 2013 land use map allows for quite a bit less housing. And that's the future use, future land use map that then informed the zoning code. So, you know, most of what that 2013 land use map and zoning code allows is single family detached housing. And beyond that, most of what is built is only built by special use permit. So that has to go right before city council, not the planning commission, which is interesting. Um, But the new future land use map uh, will change that. So it increases allowable density everywhere in the city. The 2013 land use map had two residential land use categories, low density and high density. But the new flume 
has three, general residential, medium intensity residential, and higher intensity residential. The general residential category is the lowest density area on the map, and that will allow a maximum of three units of housing, like a triplex, on all residential parcels. Medium intensity allows for four to 12 units per parcel, and a high intensity residential allows for 13 units or more. And a lot of folks are worried that some 13-unit apartment building is just going to go up next to their house. Uh, But that's not the case. That's something that is allowed by the map, but that will the map is going to inform the zoning code, and that is much more parcel by parcel. So no, every site in the city cannot handle a an apartment building. Some can, but not all. And in some places, it wouldn't be practical to do that. And so that's what's coming next in the zoning code rewrite. Will these new categories uh, increase affordable housing in Charlottesville? Um, the future land use map and the comprehensive plan are... You know, they're part of a constellation of things that have to happen or or guides of solutions, right? So we have an affordable housing plan for the city. So some of the things that are outlined in the affordable housing plan should be working in tandem with the comprehensive plan and the future land use map and the zoning map to hopefully allow for more affordable housing. In your article, you wrote about disagreements over the middle or medium intensity residential category. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the effect of that category on rezoning? Where do the disagreements come from? I think there's just not – some folks don't feel like there's a lot of clarity around the medium intensity designation because it's the new ca- – it's basically the new category, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's what's missing from a lot of – Charlottesville buildings. Um, If you notice around the city, we've got a lot of single family homes and then like some really big apartment buildings, but we don't have a lot that's in between, even though there are many opportunities Mm -hmm. for things to be in between. And so just from listening to conversations between the planners, um, city council, the planning commission, various citizen groups who have organized around this and individuals commenting at meetings, if Personally, I imagine or I think that um, part of why folks are a little confused about it is because we don't really have that medium intensity category here. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to envision what that will look like. And, you know, there's always fear of the unknown. How will the middle land use category affect equity in the housing market in Charlottesville? You know, again, making sure that folks of many different income levels can live here if they want to is really important. And that includes folks who are working low-wage jobs, which is not always a choice, right? Um, and and elderly folks, right? Like people who are on limited incomes, they only get a certain amount from Social Security every month. Oftentimes, that amount is not a- enough to cover rent. Um, and yet, these are people who've contributed to our community their whole lives. So I, I'm hopeful that it will increase equity, but that's going to take a lot of effort from the community. Like the map, the future land use map, the zoning map alone will not accomplish that. What tools are most used by, you can answer this either from the side of Albemarle County or Charlottesville, what tools are most used to increase affordable housing? 
So there are a bunch of tools out there for increasing affordable housing in in a community, in a locality. And, you know, Charlottesville and Albemarle County use many of the same ones that folks all across the country do. So those are housing subsidies where the government will pay a certain amount of your rent based on what your income is. Um, The more help you need, the more hopefully (laughs) you would get. Um, But those you know, those are housing vouchers, and there are many different types of programs for that. Um, each one has its own qualifications, and the general consensus is that – well, it's, and it's true. There's just not enough of those vouchers to go around for everyone who needs them. The wait lists are really long. They're hard to get onto at times, that sort of thing. So I think that's a major one that the that the city and the county both use. So how has the housing demand changed in Charlottesville over the past decade? Well, Charlottesville's growing. Mm-hmm. Um, its population has grown. Same with the, the county. Um, people want to live here, especially as Charlottesville makes these like 10 best places to live <laughs> lists, which really it's only the best place to live for a certain segment of people. Um, but yeah, as you know, as UVA grows, as the health system grows, as more businesses establish themselves here and have success. And as more people come in and, you know, we don't have a lot of new housing being built. And if it's just single family homes, that makes for a shortage. Um, And, you know, so a lot of folks, um, you know, and then like as the city (laughs) grows and people move in, what's been happening is that as costs rise in the city, people can't afford people who can't afford to live in the city move out into the county. But then when the county becomes unaffordable for f- folks, then they move further out. And so we're seeing a lot of people who work in Charlottesville mm-hmm. commuting in from Waynesboro and Stanton and places further west. So what are the roadblocks that are preventing the city housing from growing at the same rate as the population? Well, the land use map and the zoning code definitely mm-hmm. is is a major one because, as I was saying earlier, for the most part in the city, you can't really – there aren't many opportunities to build anything other than a single family home or a single unit, you know, because multiple families could live in a home. But, you know, like your typical house, when you think of a house, um, there's not a lot of opportunities to build anything else. So when you have only a certain amount of land – and you can only build one type of, you know, building on it um, in a residential area that really limits how much housing can be built. Or, you know, it's been tough for folks to be able to convert a, like a large house into a few different apartments. That was allowed many years ago. So we have some sort of remaining from from those times. They look like a giant house out front, right? But mm-hmm. inside, they're divided into a few different apartments. But that also hasn't been allowed. You'd have to get a special permit yeah. to do that in, like, most parts of the city. I'm not entirely sure about the county, but still a lot of single-family homes. The county has more apartment buildings, but it's also much bigger. Mm-hmm. So so does this new middle land use category, how will that affect the sort of gap in supply and demand? I think they're hoping that it will expand the supply to help meet the demand. Okay. Because um, it will it will result in things like a triplex or a fourplex. How have home prices surged in Charlottesville? Earlier this year, a report came out 
called the Smart Seville Housing Data Project. And it is fascinating um, in that it basically analyzes how the housing market in Charlottesville has evolved over the past 20 years, from 2000 to 2019. And so they've tracked things like sale prices over the past 20 years, property values over the past 20 years. And for instance, 10th and Page, which has changed a lot in the last 20 years. So average percent change and total assessment value, it's increased by like 200 almost 200%, I think, for 10th and Page. We've seen in the past 20 years, home values in, in certain neighborhoods increasing by 150%, mm-hmm. which is like, what? Yeah. You know, that's a lot. Um, and so most of the the homes and properties that are, that are sold in Charlottesville go for over the asking price, like almost everything. So to what causes would you attribute these like 150% surges? Is that that a supply and demand issue or does it go deeper than that? Um, You know, I can't say for sure. But anecdotally, again, I I think it is growth in the city. Mm -hmm. You know, people um, who, like we have a lot of big money industries here, right? Like the wedding industry is pretty big in Charlottesville. We got wine and beer. We are, you know, we have a lot of restaurants per capita. And you know, we are a tourist destination in a lot of ways. Um, and that all of that has really ramped up in the last, you know, 20 years that this that this report is looking at. Um, and UVA is growing and expanding. And so, you know, I do think that contributes to a lot of it. So we are just more of the population is is making more money. They're working higher paid jobs. Um, but also, generational wealth factors into this too, right? It's not just like what what a person makes, um, you know, that sort of thing. And and also I imagine that the fact that minimum wage has not increased, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure this whole time, also makes a difference. Because yeah. <laughs> we do have a lot of folks. That's the other thing about this too, right? Like we have all these industries that people are making a lot of money from, but then we are not providing housing for the folks who work there. Erin O'Hare is the equity reporter with Charlottesville Tomorrow. Thanks to her and also to Virginia Mercury writer Wyatt Gordon. Thanks also to our producer and editor this week, Katherine Hansen. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away. Mm-hmm.